Welcome to Antioch. We are a multi-generational, justice-minded church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the Word of God turn your heart toward Christ and the world He loves. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 29 to 31. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Charlene. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. I'm glad you made it in safely. Uh, it's a little sketchy out there. And uh, Dave Hagelmeyer is still out shoveling in the, in the parking lot. And I know some of you other guys helped out this morning. So shout out to you all. Thank you so much. Do you know where my coaster went, Sean? It's going to be a little awkward otherwise. So, <laughs> um, Before we get to the sermon, uh, several of you have been asking, but last week I was, uh, there it is. Oh, all right. That was left-handed. That was, that's right. Uh, you may remember last week I was out in Holland, Michigan at Western Theological Seminary defending my doctoral thesis, and against all odds, it went really well, and I passed. And so uh, I have uh, basically completed my doctorate of ministry with the, thank you, thank you, a, a focus in Eugene Peterson and the pastoral imagination. And uh, I'll fly back out to Michigan in April for uh, graduation. Um, and this whole thing is just kind of crazy, especially if you know me at all. I barely graduated high school. I don't have an undergrad. I was way too busy playing in punk rock bands to go to college. So uh, I skipped straight to seminary, got a master's in theology, and uh, now have a doctorate. And it's just hilarious. Um, <laughs> Now here's what's even crazier, is I'm not the only one on our staff team that finished their doctorate this week. Pastor Sean defended his dissertation on Thursday, and he nailed it, so come on up here, Sean. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Yeah, so I got my doctor, Pete keeps telling us to move this, we gotta be close, I think, yeah. Uh, we did this together. We yeah. did. I got my doctorate of ministry in a focus in Christian spirituality and spiritual formation. And mine is from Fuller in uh, Warmer, Pasadena, California, than, than Holland, Michigan. And uh, contrary to Pete, if you know me, this kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's true. Uh, you know, I got the glasses. I definitely wasn't in cool bands. So uh, it's kind of not that surprising. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. went to college. I went and to everything college. And yeah, yeah. Graduated yeah, high school. That yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Um, and it's bizarre that we finished 
in the same week as each other, because when we started, Sean and I didn't even know each other. He was uh, still out in Chicago and uh, hadn't made his way here yet, so um, it's pretty cool. So just before we move on, I want to just say a couple things, Um, and the first is, we'll never talk about this again, but (laughs) just for today, um, we got doctorates of ministry, or demons, um, which is weird. It's yeah, a little, yeah, yeah demon. Yeah. Um, and a demon is a professional doctorate as opposed to a PhD, which is an academic doctorate, uh, which is much, much more challenging. And so um, we'll take the jokes today only of Pastor Pete and Pastor Sean. Um, you can do Dr. that. Dr. Pete and oh, Dr. Sean. Thank Shawn. you. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. You missed the punchline. That was really funny when I said that. Um, and so that's, that's going to be fun. Uh, but for both of us, uh, the doctorate is something we have now, not something we are. It's not a title either of us will be using for ourselves, and we'd ask you not to either. Um, at the same time, last week when the director of my program, Wynn Collier, kind of commissioned us um, in my cohort back out into the world, um, he actually called us to embrace the vocation of doctors. And not as doctors for the sick, but as doctors for the church. In a time when, especially here in our country, the church is so divided um, and so broken in so many ways, we need doctors to come and to devote themselves to the work of bringing healing and wholeness to the body of Christ. And so, um, although we don't take the title very seriously, both Sean and I take this vocation and this calling really seriously and plan on giving the rest of our lives to that work. So, Yeah, so what we want to say is thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for encouraging us. And, you know, the difference between the different type of doctorates that Pete was talking about, there's a little bit technical stuff there. But what's important about our version of it is that we are, like, in the field. And we are with you and we are with our congregation. And so our projects and our ideas weren't hypothetical. They weren't just for like to study or a philosophical discussion. It was with you, it was supported by you, it was helped by you, changed by you. And so all to say, uh, we just wanna say thank you. Yeah. You were our guinea pigs. Yeah, thank you. All right, thanks so much. First Corinthians seven. Um, Most of you know that for the past few years, we have been following the Bible readings out of the lectionary, which is a three-year cycle of scriptures designed to bring congregations through the whole narrative of the biblical story. Uh, It's basically a Bible reading plan for the entire church. And one of the great things about the lectionary is that pastors end up preaching parts of the Bible that they would never choose. And I really do mean that's a great thing in the sense that it's good for me and it's good for you because every pastor, every church, every denomination has parts of the scripture that they're more drawn to and more prone to and parts that they're less prone to. And so I think it's a really good thing um, that the lectionary calls us to parts of the Bible that we may uh, easily overlook or ignore. And so this week's passage that Charlene read for us is one that, if I'm honest, I probably wouldn't have chosen. In fact, I never have before, Um, but it's been chosen for us, and I'm really grateful for that because it's actually an incredibly helpful and wise portion of Scripture. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about these verses. Um, 
start by just establishing that one of the things that basically all Christians have always agreed on is that when Jesus was here, he promised that one day he would return. So from the very beginning, Christians have confessed that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. This is in our creeds. This is something that followers of Jesus um, have always confessed. Now, there's been plenty of disagreement, obviously, over when that's going to happen and what that's going to look like and how that's going to happen and that sort of thing. And we're not going to get into any of those debates other than to acknowledge that for Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, and for many of the first followers of Jesus they seem to believe that Christ's return was going to happen within their lifetime. They didn't imagine that in a couple thousand years, people would still be talking about that in the future tense. They seem to believe that his return was imminent. And so that's the context in which Paul is writing here, which is important for us to understand. He's writing to a group of young Christians who are... Uh, living with the hopeful expectation that any day could be their last before Christ returns. And so those two truths, those truths are, are clear to us in the first and the last verses of this passage. In verse 29, he says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. That's what he's talking about, that Christ is likely returning any day now. And he ends in verse 31 by saying, this world in its present form is passing away. He's saying the old will go, the new will come. There's a new creation that will be here anytime. And so the early Christians lived with what we might call a hopeful expectation that any day could be the day that Jesus comes back. And then he's going to bring the fullness of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that he's going to make everything new, that he's going to truly and completely and finally reconcile all things to himself. And so with that mindset then, Paul is... <coughs> writing to this group of Christians and wrestling with these questions about if Jesus could come back at any moment, then how does that shape the way we live today? How does the, the, the coming of Christ shape the way we think about our lives, about our marriage, about our singleness, about our families, about our work, about our money? Because it has to matter, right? Like if any day could be the last day of the world as we know it, then that would change the way that we live our lives. And so those are some of the questions that Paul is addressing here. Now last week, Sean talked about 1 Corinthians kind of as hearing one side of a phone conversation where we don't hear what the Corinthian people are asking, we just hear how Paul's responding. And so the same is true in this text today. We don't get the questions that he's answering, we just get his answers and we kind of have to assume or imply what those questions are. So... Um, it, it's a little bit tricky, especially when the next verse, he says this, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Okay, we hear Paul say that on the phone, like, hmm, I wonder, <laughs> wonder what that means. <laughs> um, because he seems to be saying that married men should live as if they are not married. Which raises some questions, doesn't it? Right? Like, does that mean we don't have to put the toilet seat down? Or 
that we can go out and chase other women? Or, like, what's he talking about? Well, obviously, it's nothing like that, because that would not only contradict what the Bible generally teaches about marriage, but what specifically Paul has taught about husbands loving their wives, honoring their wives, laying their lives down for their wives. Um, so he's not doing that, but he's apparently using kind of bold, provocative language to make some other point. And then after that, he goes on and says, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not. So um, I'm no therapist, but this also sounds like bad advice, <laughs> that you should just take all your emotions and stuff them down. Um, I don't think that's what's recommended by most, most mental health professionals. So um, again, this requires some thinking beyond the surface that Paul obviously isn't saying that the goal is to be emotionally flatlined. Um, in other places, he instructs believers to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those with, who mourn. And so he's, uh, he's saying something else here. And then his last two examples are those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep and those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. So he's really talking about money and work and possessions and <clears throat> basically how do we see all the stuff that we have, which again at face value kind of sounds like some strange advice. So what's going on here? What is Paul talking about? Um, this is my grandpa. His name was Harry Heidebrecht. And this was him as a young man uh, back in the 50s, right around the time my mom was born. And uh, he, he died about 15 years ago now, but I had the privilege of getting to spend a lot of time with him as a kid and as a young adult and get to know him really well. And uh, as you might be able to tell, he is in his pulpit. Um, my grandpa was a pastor and a church planter. He planted 21 churches um, in his time, mostly throughout uh, northern and central California. And uh, since he was a pastor named Heidebrecht, they called him the German Shepherd. And, um, <laughs> and in his retirement years, he and a bunch of his retired buddies got together and bought old dilapidated houses and uh, volunteered their time to fix them up and restore them. And then they sold them and gave all of the money away to the work of the kingdom. Um, in his retirement, my grandpa gave away over a million dollars to the gospel. And, uh, you know, this was before, like, HGTV and, you know, Instagram and stuff. These guys were just out there grinding away. And so Harry Heidebrecht, my grandpa, was one of the holiest men I've ever known. And um, one of my memories from being a kid and going to visit my grandparents at their home was that I would often pull away from the chaos of all the cousins and sneak into grandpa's study where the walls were lined with books and Bible commentaries and theology and many of those books are now in, in my office. And, um, and I remember that on grandpa's wall there was this um, plaque that said this, don't do anything you wouldn't want to be doing when Jesus comes back. Don't say anything you wouldn't want to be saying when Jesus comes back. And don't go anywhere you wouldn't want to be found when Jesus comes back. 
And every time I was there, I, that caught my attention from the time I was a little kid. Um, and there would be maybe some ways to take that, those words and receive them in an anxiety-inducing way that maybe feels like um, legalism or, or religion or something like that. And if that's how it hits you, then just you know, put it on the shelf for a couple of years and come back to it. But for me, um, I find it incredibly wise. And the reason is that just like Paul says in verse 29, that the time is short. The time is short. And on one hand, Paul clearly expected Christ to return in his lifetime. And as we look back on that, we may think, well, he maybe wasn't quite right on that. But does that mean that he was wrong for living that way? Does that mean he was wrong for anticipating that at any moment Jesus could return? It may still be a wise way to live. And even outside the context of Christ's return, the truth is that none of us knows how much time we have, right? None of us knows which day might be our last for any reason. So there's wisdom in living with this awareness and an attentiveness to the fact that time is short. And like Paul says in verse 31, this world in its present form is passing away. Now again, Paul is clearly speaking eschatologically here. I have a doctorate, so I can use that word. <laughs> it just means having to do with the end times. Paul is talking about the return of Christ, but this sentiment is also true in a general sense. This world is passing away. Can you believe how quickly the world is changing? How hard it is to keep up with what's happening in the news, within culture, within all the stuff. It's, it's changing at a rate it's never changed before. And so in a very real sense, time is short. And this world, the world as we know it, is passing away. And if those things are true, then every day matters. And everything I do matters. And everything I say matters. And everywhere I go matters. And I think it would be wise to live according to that sign when it comes to stewarding the days that God's been given us in light of Christ's promised return. Because life sometimes feels long, but it's not, is it? And most of us know the names of our grandparents. You might know the names of your great-grandparents. I doubt you know the names of your great-great-grandparents. That's how long a legacy lasts. Unless you make the news, three generations, and you're gonna be forgotten. If you have grandkids today, your, grand, your grandkids' kids might know your name, and that's it. <laughs> They'll never speak your name again after that. So 100 years from now, we're, all be, we're gonna all be gone, and there'll be all new people, <laughs> right? So, whatever day you have, whatever time you have, whatever gift you have, whatever you do with this one life you've been given, it matters. So that's the question then. What are you gonna do with this one life you've been given? How are you gonna make the most of it? How are you gonna decide 
what's most important. And as followers of Jesus specifically, what is God's call on this life that he's given to you? That can be a little bit of an overwhelming question, and it can create some anxiety within us. And the reason it creates anxiety, at least within me, is that I have limited time, I have limited capacity, and I have divided interests. It's a phrase that Paul uses elsewhere in this passage. In these five examples that he lists of marriage and singleness and happiness and sadness and work and vocation, he's acknowledging that all of these different interests or obligations or relationships in our lives requires time, energy, and attention, and we can't do it all. And so what we're really dealing with here in this passage is a set of questions that have to do with the Christian idea of vocation. Vocation. Now, we often use the word vocation synonymously with career or occupation. And sometimes your vocation and your occupation overlap, but they aren't the same thing in Christian thought. Vocation comes from the Latin root voca, where we get the word vocal. Your vocation, then, is your voice. It's the song your life is meant to sing. It's God's calling upon your life, the thing that he put you here to do. David G. Benner defines vocation as the way of being that is both best for us and best for the world. And Frederick Buechner says the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And so when you think about your vocation, your calling, the thing that you're here to do and be, the truth is, it's not singular. Every single one of us has multiple vocations that we're trying to fulfill simultaneously. So for me, I am a husband, and I'm a dad, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm a grandson, I'm an uncle, I'm a pastor, I'm a friend, I'm a neighbor, I'm a citizen. I could keep going, and so could you. Every single one of us has multiple titles, roles, identities that make up our lives. And these are all part of our vocation. And what's crazy is that underneath each of these vocations, you could break them down even more, right? So as a father, I'm a provider. I'm a protector. I'm a teacher. I'm a coach. I'm a driver. I'm lots of different things as a father. So even within that vocation, I have to figure out what's the most important. And you could break those down even further, right? And so the point is that you have a multivocational call upon your life. There are simultaneously many things that God has called you to do and to be in the world. And if I spend all my time just on one of those, then the others get neglected, right? So if you spend all your time at work, 
then you're not going to be present to your family. And if you only spend time with your family, then you won't be a good neighbor, right? And if you only focus on being a good friend, then you can't be a good boss. Or whatever that looks like for you, we all know that wrestle. We all know that tension in terms of how we steward our relationships, our identities, and these various aspects of our vocation. Am I alone here? Does anybody else ever wrestle with any of these questions? Okay, this is something we all experience in one way or another. Which part of my life do I need to be investing in more than I currently am, and how does that affect all the other parts? This is complicated stuff that's simply part of what it is to be human. And then when you put on top of that the fact that time is short and the world is passing away and Jesus could return at any moment, then it all just kind of gets amped up and intensified. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. And the situations that he lists regarding marriage and emotions and work and money, he's talking about areas where our interests are divided. And so the question comes down to, what does wise, godly, righteous stewardship of our vocational life look like? And how do we manage the various aspects of all that God has called us to do and to be? Um, in a book called Courage and Calling, Gordon T. Smith suggests that there's three dimensions to Christian vocation. And I found this to be an incredibly helpful model that I want to share with you briefly. It has to do with asking if, what is my vocation or what is God's calling on my life? Um, and he would argue that all three of these exist simultaneously. And the first is, at the center of that circle, the general call. This general call refers to the call that we have from God to God. Our first calling is to God himself, to a life of loving communion with our Father. That because of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, we've been invited to live deeply in loving fellowship with God, to become like Jesus, and to know ourselves primarily as those who are made by him, saved by him, loved by him forever. And so we have to start with this general calling. That's who we are and what we're here to do first and foremost. God calls us to himself. And then there's this next circle out, which Smith calls the immediate calling. And these are really the tasks or the duties that I'm faced with today. Um, for most of us, this is the stuff that comes along with our marriage or our singleness or our relationships and especially our work um, and career vocations that have to do with just the, the nine to five. But then also the stuff when it comes to being a parent and being a friend and being a neighbor and shoveling my sidewalk and doing the grocery shopping and doing the laundry and calling my grandma and just kind of all the stuff that's unique to my life and the things that are right in front of me. And we often can go, yeah, that's just kind of, I don't know, everyday life. That's not the stuff that God really cares about. 
But if it's the stuff that we spend most of our life doing, it's clearly the stuff that God cares about. How we work, how we treat our spouse, our friends, our kids, our coworkers, what we do with our time, with our gifts, with our possessions. And so that's the immediate vocation that each of us has. And then the third is the specific vocation. And this one is a little trickier to talk about, but it has to do with the unique and specific way that God calls each of us to participate in his mission in the world. So figuring out our calling isn't about what's my mission, it's about what's my place in God's mission. And every once in a while, for some people, I think God has a specific calling on someone's life that he allows them to chase after. And he, he wires that calling into their being. And so the work that they do throughout the day isn't just a way to provide, but it's like, this is the thing I'm here to do. This is what I was made for. And this one is a little bit tricky to talk about because I think anytime we're asking questions related to our specific calling, like, is this the thing that I'm here to do? Anytime we're asking that question, well, that's really a mark of privilege, isn't it? Because most people throughout history and most people around the world don't have the luxury of asking, am I really being fulfilled by my work? Right? So anytime we ask that question, like, is this really fulfilling God's call on my life? I don't mean privilege in the sense of you should feel guilty about that. I mean privilege in the sense of that's a gift that you should steward very wisely. And sometimes God has specific calls on people's lives and provides a way for them to pursue that call for the sake of his purpose and pleasure. It's not a perfect model, but I've found it helpful, especially um, walking with people who are discerning what should I do next when it comes to work or school or education or vocation. And here's what matters. The order matters. Because if you skip your general call and just get caught up in the immediate, then you're missing out on the core of who you are and what your life is meant to be all about as defined in relationship with God through Christ. And we all know people that neglect the inner circles to pursue the outer, give themselves to self-fulfillment, self-actualization, finding my unique specific calling while neglecting those that are right around me and right in front of me. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. He's saying, yeah, you're multivocational, and so you have your marriage, your singleness, your family, your work, your money, your inner life, and all that. Make sure you don't build the foundation of your life on anything other than God. Just a few verses later in verse 35, Paul sums up his whole point really clearly. He says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. 
That's what all this is about. When he says, live as if you didn't have a wife. <laughs> live, as if, live as if you weren't happy or you weren't sad or you didn't have anything. He's going, your undivided devotion to the Lord, your preoccupation with knowing God and being with him and becoming like him. That should be so central and foundational to your life, to your identity, to your vocation, that everything else, it's like it doesn't even matter comparatively. This is the vision that Paul has for these early Christians, that they would live with an undivided devotion to the Lord. And he says, I'm not doing this to guilt you. I'm not doing this to judge you. I'm not doing this to restrict you. I really do want to help. This is for your own good. This really is the best way to live. And so this is why we give the first hours of the first day of every week to God in worship. This is why we gather here to begin this week in the name of Jesus, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, to devote our hearts and our minds and our lives to him, not so we can check the box off and get on with Monday through Saturday, but so that everything else in our life now will flow out of this relationship that's nurtured here, out of this identity and this vocation of being known and loved by God. So to build your life, your identity, and your vocation, first and foremost, upon God. To live in such a way that every day you're attempting to only do those things that you would be happy to be doing when Jesus returns. What does that look like? Does that mean... I'm only praying, only reading the Bible, only worshiping, taking communion all day, every day, right? <laughs> Obviously not. <clears throat> In 1 John, I think he gives us a helpful answer to this question that talks about what does it look like when we live from a place of our identity and vocation being rooted in God alone. He says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. This is our first vocation. To live in the love of God. And out of that love, out of that place of security and belovedness, we become people who are safe in our identity, who know who we are, and are therefore freed to live a life of love. 
And not only is that the kind of people that God has called us to be, that's the kind of people that the world needs most. So Antioch, may you live a life free of anxiety with a heart of undivided devotion to God, knowing that he has a heart of undivided devotion to you. Amen. Amen.